As an entrepreneur, I think one of the hardest things to do is actually to like remember to celebrate and to like enjoy the process. One of my number one regrets is that I like didn't take more pictures along the way. And then I probably just like didn't pause to appreciate a little bit more. Welcome to Teach Me Something New. I'm your host, Britt Morin, and this is a production of iHeartRadio and Brit & Co. All my life, everyone's told me I should focus on being good at one thing. But the truth is, I'm curious about a lot of things. But how do you learn about everything? The answer? Make the world's best experts teach you in less than an hour. So come along with me as we all learn something new. Have you ever struggled to get dressed because you felt like nothing looked right on you? Or maybe you just felt out of touch with the trends? Perhaps you hate shopping in general? Well, today's guest, Katrina Lake, is the founder of the hit personal styling service, Stitch Fix. By simply collecting survey monkey data from her clients as to what clothing style they preferred, Katrina was able to build one of the most sophisticated and data-driven fashion businesses on the internet. After just six years, Stitch Fix became a billion-dollar company and went public in 2017. Katrina became one of only 20 women to ever lead a startup to an initial public offering, and that same year, Forbes named her one of America's richest self-made women. When she's not working on Stitch Fix, she's a board member for Grubhub and Glossier, and most importantly of all, a mom to two with a third shortly on the way. In today's episode, Katrina is speaking to us live in front of hundreds of entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs-to-be as part of our self-made program, a 10-week virtual startup school to help women start and grow their businesses. And I'm sure these ladies would love to follow in her footsteps. With that, it's my pleasure to welcome the superwoman, Katrina Lake. Hi, Katrina. Hi. Thank you for having me. Hi, everybody. Well, thanks for being here. And truly, what a remarkable career you've had. And I feel like I got to be a fly on the wall. We started our companies around the same time and yours just like rocket shipped. Um, and it was amazing to see it and everything that you've done for women along the way. But before we get into that, I actually always like to start at the beginning because I feel like our childhood selves tell us a lot about who we're going to be when we grow up. So what was young Katrina like? Did you always want to be an entrepreneur? Yeah, it's really funny. I mean, I really, I don't think I realized until pretty late in life that like I could be one and that I wanted to be one. And like, I grew up in a household that was like, my dad was a doctor, but he was like in the university system. He'd only, I think he's had basically two jobs in his like career. And, um, and my mom was a public school teacher. And so like, I didn't have a lot of like, I don't know, businessy kind of talk at the dinner table or like businessy role models. But the thing that I will give credit to is that I had these two examples of women in my life, in my like family narrative that had done amazing things that I give credit to, to inspiring the possibility of entrepreneurship. And those two examples are one, my Japanese grandmother who was born in Japan during World War II in a society that was not that feminist, certainly, and was not, didn't have a lot of opportunities for women. She was in an arranged marriage. She grew up her whole life, like dreaming of being an American and wishing to have that opportunity for herself one day and, you know, grew up in a place where like she wasn't allowed to drive, where she wasn't in an arranged marriage. She had two daughters, one of whom was my mom. And she really kind of instilled in her daughters, like you should get an education, go to school, you know, eventually go to graduate school. And she eventually did that. Like, so eventually my grandmother, like her daughters went to the United States, went to school and she followed and became an American. 
Now, that's a really incredible thing where it's like anything that I try to do in my life is not as amazing as that. Like that's so improbable and so crazy. And she was able to do that. And then the other kind of anecdote is that my grandfather was raised by two women. And the way and the way that came about was actually that it was his mom, my grandfather's mom and her sister both lost their partners very early and they combined their households. And so they decided like we're going to be, you know, two women raising kids together One's going to go to work. One's going to take care of the kids. And so my grandfather grew up kind of as his cousins, as siblings and was, and he was raised by women. And so like my American grandfather was the one who like taught me to drive. He taught me to use a computer. He had like one of those really old Macintoshes. He like taught me math. You know, he just had this point of view of like, of course, women can do everything. And like, of course you should know math. Of course I, I should teach you to drive. And so, you know, I share those stories, not at all because they're unique. You know, all of you here have stories like this in your family. And maybe you are that story. You know, I share it more because like, I think now with the benefit of retrospect, I look back and I think those stories were really meaningful and shaping in my mind what was possible. And so when you have narratives like that going on in your mind and you think about like, I'm going to start a company and people are like, that's crazy. You're like, that's not as crazy as this other stuff that's happened. And so to be able to have that perspective, I think of being able to have so much possibility available, I think is really, is really, really valuable. Yeah. And especially what you said about your grandfather, just being so open to helping women move forward, which certainly probably wasn't the trend for his generation. But I'm curious about your your mom and your grandma, you know, being of Japanese descent, did that actually enable your mom to spread her wings and give you more opportunity to go out and try to accomplish such big things? I mean, if anything, like my mom and my grandmother, my grandmother, especially she was such a feminist. And so like, I remember her just, I don't know, doing like wild things and encouraging us to be outspoken. And so, you know, I think if anything, you know, being the fact that my mom and her mother both immigrated here, you know, for what America's promise was of like being able to be outspoken and being able to pursue dreams. Like, you know, I think that was kind of the purpose of us, of them being here. And so I think they certainly were, you know, really encouraging of that and, and really encouraging, I think of just giving us all the opportunity that we can and doing that really through education. It sounds like you, you really were, you were like allowed to shine. Yeah. I mean, the anecdote that I was going to share was like, you know, even today, my mom still inspires me. Like one of the things that she did, she, so she retired, she was a public school teacher, as I mentioned, right before COVID. So like a couple of years ago, probably she retired and she, you know, she started going to the gym. Like that was kind of like, she go to the gym, did yoga classes, yoga turned into Zumba, Zumba turned into basically long story short. Now she's like super into like hip hop dance. And so like my mom, who is, you know, a small Japanese woman who immigrated here is literally like she, she, and she shows up at the dance classes and she's in the front row and she's like, I don't care. You know, she's like, I'm like 67 or whatever. Like, I don't care what people think of me. I, I love dancing and I love, you know, being close to the instructor and, you know, it's such a inspiration. I think that it's like, it's, you're never too old to create a new life. Like you're never too old to like learn something new and to try something new. And I do think there is such an immigrant mentality. I think that really helps with that. That Sometimes I wish I had, I don't know, like it's so like bold to be able to be in a new place and try something new and be totally vulnerable in that way. And like, you know, if you've immigrated here, like you've been forced to do that. And so, you know, just like anything, you get comfortable with doing that. And I think it's such like an asset in life. Yes. And by the way, I want your mom to be my best friend and I would love to go to a Zumba (laughs) class with her. So let's make that happen. Okay. So let's fast forward. You were talking about how, you know, education was like super important in your childhood and your upbringing. That's the thing that they really cared about for you. Okay. So you ended up going to, you know, 
Harvard to get your MBA. And actually, that's where the idea for Stitch Fix came about. So can you fast forward a little bit and tell us how that happened? Yeah, in undergrad, I thought I wanted to be um, a doctor. And so I kind of did pre-med. I even took the MCAT. Like, I was, like, ready to go. And um, it's so, like, it is the power of, like, trying something on almost. It's like I was then volunteering in a hospital And like literally the thing at the 11th hour that spooked me was actually just like being in the hospital environment all day. And so it kind of, it was the realization a little bit to like pump the brakes on like committing to this really long career path. I did consulting, which was kind of a great way to just like get to know business and get to like, you know, you kind of get to see a bunch of different companies and clients. And so I saw companies like Applebee's and IHOP and Kohl's and I don't know, eBay and like all kinds of companies and got to learn a little bit about them. I learned about business and like, you know, I really love like creativity of business. I really love that it is this combination of like math. It's like it's math, but also this creative, almost like human psychology, human behavioral psychology. And so anyway, so I kind of fell in love with that. And then I really specifically fell in love with this problem of just like, how are people going to buy clothes 20 years from now? It just just doesn't make any sense. Like the idea that you're going to buy jeans online like imagine typing jeans into a search engine and expecting that you're actually going to find a pair that way that fit you well like it's just like a totally preposterous concept and so you know with stitch fix in particular like i'm five foot two you know there's so many things on the planet that are beautiful things that will never fit me because i'm five foot two and i'm like this is a simple data problem like somebody can solve this and so i got really obsessed with this concept and spent a bunch of time trying to figure out you know what company is going to do this which company is going to be at the forefront of changing this and you know ultimately did that kind of looking at big companies did that looking at startups and ultimately like was like i don't know that any of these companies is really focused on this problem and that was really the light bulb moment for me of just somebody has to solve this problem. And like, if nobody out there is doing it, like, I guess it can be me. Yes. And so you identified the problem. You were like, oh, I guess no one else is doing this. Maybe I should. And then like, what was your first step to validate this idea? Like a lot of us right now might have ideas for new startups, new products or services. But how do you know that people care about that or want that? So what I did, they're kind of the very scrappiest phase and then there's the next scrappiest phase. But like the very scrappiest phase was like, you know, I was trying to figure out, okay, what are the few things that I need to kind of get confidence around to feel like this is going to work? And so one of those things actually at the time was now I feel like there's more of a culture of emerging designers and designers you've not heard of and that being cool. You know, this is 10, 12 years ago. So I was kind of like, are people going to be interested in things that don't have a J. Crew label or don't have a Banana Republic or don't have a whatever? And so that was one of my main questions was just like, are people going to be open to brands that they're not necessarily already familiar with? Um, and then the other question was like, can I learn enough about somebody from what they say to me that I can actually send, give them clothes that are going to fit them? And so those were kind of like the two major things I wanted to kind of get comfortable with before I decided this idea would work. So what I did was actually like I was living, as you said, I was in, I was in Boston. I had never lived in Boston. I didn't have a lot of friends in Boston. So it was like actually quite easy to like get introduced to people I don't know. And so what I did was I would kind of run these small betas where I would get connected to people who I don't know, who basically I hadn't met, and I would have them fill out an online survey. And then I would literally go to local boutiques. I had a credit card with a $6,000 limit on it, I would buy things at these boutiques. And I kind of feel guilty about this in retrospect, just because like, these are also small businesses. And like, I was using them to learn, but you know, I'd have this spreadsheet of like all the things I was buying from these boutiques, and I would return anything that I didn't sell within their return window. So I'm sure if I had done this long enough, I would have gotten kicked out of these boutiques (laughs) or whatever. But like, but you know, I would kind of go through and I would 
you know, buy things. And then people would give me a check if they decided they wanted to keep it. But I was basically kind of like the broker in between the boutique and this customer. And so, um, you know, it was totally imperfect. Like, obviously, you know, I mean, a su- super scrappy. I was literally like bringing, I didn't even have a car. I don't know how I did this, but I would like bring clothes to people's houses. And I would literally wait there while they tried things on <laughs> just because then it would save me a trip to like go back. And so it was really just kind of like a way to test some of these hypotheses. And what was interesting was that, you know, to be clear, these are super small sample size, but in this very small sample set, I found that people were actually kind of excited to like discover brands that were not the ones they were already comfortable with. And I was like, that's cool. People are excited about that, not freaked out about it. And then the other thing was that like, you kind of could actually learn a lot about what somebody's taste is through what they share with you. And, you know, of course their height and weight and all that kind of stuff is super helpful, but even more than that, just actually people saying like, these are the types of activities I like to do. And these are the types of, you know, styles that I usually wear. Like that's actually like pretty helpful. And so that gave me enough to be like, I think there's a there there. I kind of use some of that beta, you know, in, in that model, I was not making any money, right? I was just kind of, transacting my credit card, you know, people were buying the same prices that I bought from the boutiques or whatever. And so I wasn't making any money, but I could kind of start to validate. Um, and then actually the very, very, you know, long story short, like it came out to Silicon Valley, was able to raise a seed round against this. And we were, even for the first six months of Stitch Fix, like we actually just had a landing page. You would click out to it. I was using PayPal. We didn't even have payment processing and you could learn it through SurveyMonkey. And so, you know, there were definitely ways that you could kind of hack together the experience. And so a couple things, like one is like, there are so many ways you can validate and like see if there's product market fit. And like, you know, the fast forward again, a few years, the first three years of Stitch Fix was all organic growth. It was literally just like, People telling other people, we didn't have a beautiful website. We didn't have a beautiful brand. You know, to be very honest with you, like the customer experience was not nearly as good as it is today. Like a lot of Stitch Fix, like what makes it work is that we actually have to have a lot of selection or else we're not going to be able to personalize as well, right? So like over time, as the business got bigger, we actually are able to do better and better for people. But like there were times in those early days when, you know, somebody would want, you know, some, I don't know, all we had were like, kind of Coachella dresses and the customer was not that person or whatever. Like there's definitely times when there are crazy mismatches, but people still spread the word and people still kind of told other people about it. And there was still this amazing organic growth. And so even when there are times when I might doubt or like venture investors were doubtful or whoever is doubtful for me, um, there was always this belief from the customer that like, this has a reason to be in the world. And like, this is creating value for me. And so, you know, to be able to have that validation and confidence in you, I think is just, you know, hugely, hugely beneficial. I love how scrappy you were, first of all. It's just like survey monkey to collect data about these people and their preferences, right? With styling and fit and what they like to wear. And then as a landing page of a website, not like a multi-page web, like a landing page. It was a landing page. I clicked like, that to a survey monkey. Once you filled out the style profile, I PayPal requested you $20. I mean, it was crazy. Oh my gosh. And then you who like, was going to be a doctor are now dressing people (laughs) like you're now a stylist and you're driving you're going to their house with a bag of clothes from a boutique to be like I think you should try these jeans like I think I just I just love how experimental this phase is and I want everyone listening uh, to to think about that like it's not going to be perfect it's going to be messy it should be messy it should be scrappy 
You're going to have to do all the jobs from the stylist to the accountant to the, the buyer, you know, all of the things, the landing page creator. And that's the beauty of this early stage, right? And over time, you've now, you know, grown to hire thousands of people and take a company public. And we'll talk about that. But like, I just think there's so much beauty in that early phase. And so like one question for you is like, what were the challenges you had to face? Were they operational challenges or were they like mindset challenges about you getting over the hump to believe that you should do this and go raise money and build a huge company? I don't know. I mean, there are so many challenges. Um, I'm not even sure which ones were the biggest ones. But like what I did feel really lucky about was is this a good idea? Honestly, like that really wasn't something I had to worry a lot about. Like it was really just like, I mean, I can't even tell you how many, you know, even with it being totally imperfect, like there were so, there was so much feedback that I would get that was like, you know, I love the idea of this. This is really fun. You know, I, I've never had a stylist before. Like, this is awesome. Like there was just like, there was so much positive customer feedback that I always felt conviction that like this business had a reason to exist in the world. The things that were hard, I mean, you know, executing, it was super hard. Like you have to like, you know, the math behind what we do is extraordinarily hard. I could talk about this for hours, but like, especially in those early days, you know, not only do you have to know how many pairs of shorts relative to how many tops do you need, but like, you need to know like how many of those should be white and how many of those should be different sizes. And you need to plan that for like, who's going to be referring, you know, we're, we're growing organically. Like we don't know exactly who's going to be coming in the door. And so that matching was just like an incredibly challenging math problem. Like our business in general is one where like we have to use data to be able to build conviction around what we buy because we are selling things, you know, effectively full price. Like we are like our our notion is like this. We don't want to be selling you a bazillion things that are cheap. Like we want to sell you like a few things a year that you really love. Jeans are a great example. We spend a lot of time in like algorithmic investment on jeans. Like jeans are one of those things where like if you buy one pair a year from us and they're jeans that you really love, like that is success. Like we're not trying to get you to buy. 50 pairs of jeans. We're trying to get you to buy one pair that you really, really love. And so that means that we have to be really good at matching. It means that we have to be really good at buying. It means that we have to be really good at the math behind the scenes. And so that, you know, that kind of operational side of it is really challenging. Um, I don't know, marketing it is challenging. Like it's a totally new business. And then the biggest one is raising money was just incredibly hard. And even today, like talking to investors, we are really lucky. You know, we've now been public for four years. We have a lot of great investors who are super supportive, who really understand the business. But like, I still am spending time with people who it takes a lot more investment for me to get them to understand the business and get them to understand our customer because the investor community is wildly undiverse and, you know, and not necessarily our customer. And so, you know, getting investors really excited about a business that's a physical business. We sell clothes in the mail. You know, that's not like the type of venture backed app business that goes viral and venture investors are traditionally super excited to invest in. It was a very, very challenging. The biggest challenge was probably honestly on the money raising side. And, you know, of course, as an entrepreneur, you always make that a silver lining. And in our business, it meant that we got profitable really quickly and we were very capital efficient. We used, I think, somewhere around $30 million or something to build a profitable billion dollar plus business. And, you know, you see a lot of other startups out there that like, to be clear, $30 million to me still sounds like a lot of money, but you hear a lot of businesses out there that are raising hundreds of millions of dollars to build like a billion dollar business. And the odds were stacked against us very much on the fundraising side. And just, we were very lucky, honestly, that like 
somebody didn't pop up and raise a hundred million dollars to go up against us or something like that. Because if we had to face like a money burning war, in addition to all of the other things that were challenging about our business, it, it would have added another layer of complexity for sure. And I want to pause on the fundraising thing, because I don't think a lot of people know this, that only 2.3% of all venture capital dollars go to female founded companies. 0.6% of venture capital dollars go to black female founded companies. So just so everyone understands the lay of the land here in 2021, it's really bad. Um, and I've gone through this as well. It's one of the reasons why I decided to raise a venture capital fund so I could give more women that opportunity. But, you know, Katrina, I know I've gotten, I don't know, a hundred plus no's to, you know, fundraising pitches. What did you tell yourself every time someone shut you down? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I probably also have had a hundred plus no's. Um, I don't know. I mean, you know, to be really honest, like I, I just got so used to it at this point. Like I have such thick skin, like I don't mind hearing no at all. You know, I think in the beginning you, you said like, it is something like you can get used to like that feeling of vulnerability. Like, I think it's totally true. Like, unfortunately, like you do get used to that, that rejection. And as an entrepreneur, I think you do kind of find yourself finding that silver lining of like a lot of times people, when they say no, they're, they're not going to fully close the door. Like they're not going to say like, this is a terrible idea. The investors usually give you kind of a soft no, right? They're like, yeah, like it's just not quite the right scale for me. Or like, yeah, like I'm just not sure about the space yet. Or yeah, like I just need to see a little more data. Like these are the types of things that venture investors say, but like, hey, we should keep in touch. And like, and then the critical part, let me know if I can be helpful. And I'm like, you can be helpful. And so when they give you that window of like, let me know if I can be helpful, I would latch onto that. And I'd be like, actually, funny, you should ask. I see these three people that you're connected to on LinkedIn, or I noticed that you used to work at Twitter, or I noticed that blah, blah, blah. And then actually like building that relationship because, you know, so much of this is also relationship building. Totally. And so can you tell me what you look for in a great business, whether it's a, a venture business or kind of a small profitable business? For me, when I look at these humans that I'm investing in and like, I am looking for just like sheer tenacity to bulldoze through walls that might get put up in front of you. I think there are so many challenges that come with building a business and so often you want to quit. But I am seeking that person who is just like believes in the mission, is really best in class at what they do and will like blaze through. But what are the things that you look for in that early entrepreneur who's just kind of getting started? You don't know if the idea is going to work or not yet. Yeah. No, I mean, I think it's similar. It's like grit. It's creativity. Honestly, it's just like, you know, figuring out how one example, there was a woman who worked at Stitch Fix for, I mean, eight years. Like she was like our longest employee where she, and she had done all kinds of different jobs and she'd started out like right out of college. And then by the time she left, she was like a director and she'd done all kinds of different jobs. And, you know, when I remember when I hired her, she had just graduated from college. She had done one admin like job. You know, there's nothing on her resume necessarily that would like show you that she would be an amazing human to invest in. But like she had started this YouTube channel that was really like interesting makeup. It wasn't just like makeup. It was like kind of costume makeup and it had all these followers. And like, it was just like, there are these little things like, and her parents were immigrants and she had worked in their store, right? There are these little things like that where you're like, 
okay, like she's done this. That means she's totally comfortable. She understands what it means to be all hands on deck and doing all kinds of different things. And this YouTube thing, it was like she built something out of nothing. And it was pretty impressive. It had like hundreds of thousands of followers, right? And so there are these like little things that you could pattern recognize to be like, this person is, you know, it's kind of the combination of, I guess, I don't know, street smart, like common sense, smart, of creative, of proactive. I'm just going to get out there and put content out there and grow it and figure out what works and then iterate. And so, you know, it's just this combination of these attributes that, you know, leads me to, to feel like, yeah, like this person's going to figure it out. And, mm-hmm. and so I think it's, I think it's all the words you described. And it, for me, it's like grit and creativity and probably, yeah, like that proactiveness, that you know, kind of willingness to lean in and and with that also vulnerability, right? It's like you have to be comfortable putting yourself out there and failing and you have to be comfortable trying something new and you have to be comfortable in the uncomfortable space. And so that's another thing that, you know, to me is one of the like little signals of it's not the resume, right? It's not like, what have you done in the past? It's not what schools have you gone to? It's like, it's actually a lot of these other things of how are you going to act in certain situations? go back to Stitch Fix. So, you know, you built this thing over six years before taking it public for, you know, a billion dollar plus public market valuation. What were some of the like keys to that success and growing over six years? I mean, the two were our clients and the team. And so, you know, first I, I've mentioned this a couple of times before, but just being able to have that really close connection with clients and being or it, with customers and having this like two-way door of feedback and validation and challenge, like knowing when we're doing something well, knowing when we're not doing something well, just, you know, I think there's so many times in life where you're like, am I doing this right? Is this working? Is this how I'm supposed to do it? And to be able to have that venue with your customers so that they can be telling you like, yep, this is working or like, nope, this isn't working. Just being able to constantly have your finger on the pulse of like, how are my customers experiencing my, my service? That was, I think, hugely, hugely valuable and still is hugely valuable today. Like even in fixes today, a lot of what has enabled our ability to personalize is actually the feedback that we're getting constantly every single day on every single fixing garment from our clients. And that's what actually makes all the wheels turn. So that's definitely first and foremost. Um, And then the second one really was team. Like Mike, who is kind of there through the public offering with me, he joined Stitch Fix when we were a year in and he had been the COO of walmart.com. And he took this huge chance to come and join me and join this team. And, you know, we had, and actually, I mean, Sharon, who I just mentioned, like, she's another one that was also super important. You'll notice when I'm talking about Stitch Fix, it's impossible for me to talk about the success that we've had without talking about the people that were such a critical part of that. And some of those are those people like Mike, who have, you know, a lot of experience and, and, you know, a lot of, a lot of credibility and brought that. And then some of the people are like Sharon, where it's like, you know, there's, nothing relevant on her resume, but it was like her passion. It was her grit. Um, but but also on that note, like, okay, Mike from walmart.com, when you're a one-year-old startup, how do you recruit these amazing people? Like what was the pitch you gave them? And presumably you had to pay him less, right? Than he was yeah. making at Walmart. I really wish I could rewind and like watch a video of myself and what I told Mike, because I would be fascinated to know. Because now in retrospect that I feel like, I mean, I'll actually share one other thing too. Like, I think sometimes you can feel a little bit like sheepish or embarrassed by your I don't know, like beginner's mindset or, you know, kind of not knowing what you don't know. And I, it was such a gift. Like the fact that I didn't know any better. I was like literally cold calling people on LinkedIn who were like, had really big jobs at places. And now I feel like I'm like, oh, that was pretty bold of me. But like at the time, like I almost like didn't even know better. I just kind of thought, oh, this person looks really interesting. I'm just going to reach out to them. I thought of LinkedIn as like the yellow pages or something. 
oh, like, you know, maybe they'll pick up if I call them. And so I think there is such a, I don't know, such a benefit to it. I mean, I would kind of call that ignorance. Like, I feel like I just, I kind of didn't know better that it was like, maybe you shouldn't be reaching out to like, you know, the president of some company on LinkedIn when you're 28 and like starting a company. But anyway, so I definitely like really encourage that like bold embracing of the ignorance of it because like it, you know, you just never know where it's going to lead. But yeah, I wish I could be a fly on the wall. But you know, I, I mean, a lot of what we talked about early was probably what I talked about with Mike. There's no real way to like buy clothes in the future. How are we going to do this? We can figure it out together. You know, I think the thing that I really underestimated was like for somebody like Mike, who'd spent 15 years at Walmart, like he was super excited to be part of the founding journey. And he was super excited to be part of creating the culture of this company. And so he was in a place in his life that he like, he wanted to take a risk. And so to answer the question around how do we afford him? He basically came to me and he did the math. He's like, I want to have as much equity as I can in the company. I want to own as much of the company as I can. You know, he has a daughter, he has a mortgage, he has a house. He's like, I figured out what my expenses are. This is the minimum amount that I need to live. If you can pay me this minimum amount and then just put everything else, all of the rest of my compensation in equity, I w- would love to join you. And so, you know, I'll be honest, like I couldn't have hired like a bunch of people. I, I didn't have the budget to do that for lots of people. And I was fortunate that Mike is a super humble, you know, he drove like a old red Prius and he was super happy with that. Like he was, you know, he didn't have a lot of like needs in his life that were super expensive. And so that kind of works. So it was a little bit of right time, right place for both of us. But, you know, I think like I really wanted somebody to help me and be, you know, this partner and founding the company together. And that's what Mike was looking for. And so, you know, I think if you can find that gem, like there's a way to make it work. Yeah, for sure. And it's those those believers that make all the difference. It's not you don't want the person who just wants the money. You want the person who's here for the the rocket ship ride, you know, you like who's going to get on. And, you know, the, the best quote, I think Eric Schmidt, the former CEO of Google, once said was, when someone offers you a seat on the rocket ship, don't ask which seat. Just get on the rocket ship. <laughs> it's like, just be part of the journey. I'm, I'm sure um, the you know lowest paid person at Facebook who started in year one at Facebook is extremely happy that they jumped into something new at Facebook for you know forty thousand dollars a year. Um, so I agree with that for sure. So um, I also want to talk about how you're a mom of, of soon to be three children. And, uh, you know, you're infamous for holding, you know, your son on the stage, taking this company public. Um, How has being a mom changed the way that you've done entrepreneurship? I mean, across a few dimensions, like firstly, even before I was a mom, I, you know, I felt like I had spent enough time in normal work environments to know what some of the shortcomings were from my perspective. And so when I founded the company, I really had this lens of like, if I was going to ha- create a culture where somebody like me wanted to work here for 10 plus years, not like a couple years, for like 10 plus years, what would be the things that I would have as part of that culture? And so I think that was kind of like a helpful mindset. And relatedly too, I think, you know, once you're a mom and you realize how, like how much you want to make time for that, like you just also realize how meaningful the time that you spend at work has to be. And so I do think that it really, you know, helped me to be really thoughtful about the culture and be really thoughtful about what is the meaning in the work that we're doing so that, you know, you really can feel fulfilled. I think, you know, many of us 
feel very fulfilled in the time that we spend at home with our kids. And I also want people to feel really fulfilled by the time at work and feeling like working actually helps me to be a better mom at home and helps me to be a better parent at home. And like, what does work that helps you to feel complete, like look like and feel like. And so I think it definitely, you know, helped from that mindset. And then of course, there are the tactical things we've done. Like we have a 16 week parental leave, which is for men and for women and for, you know, for all kinds of different ways of, um, of creating families. And that's super important just because, you know, I think there's, um, I, I want a world in which there's going to be a more equal dynamic of parenting. I want a role. I, I want a future where, um, where people are, you know, able to actually work and also create families and be fulfilled in all parts of their lives. And that's something that we've extended to our stylists and to our warehouse populations from the very beginning. And so, you know, I think there are, of course, all those types of decisions that, that we make along the way. And so I think being able to, to have a broader perspective, I think of like all the different life choices that we all make, how all those different life choices affect people's career and how we can actually try to even that playing field. Yes, 100%. I love that, especially with, you know, there's trends of adoption and all kinds of things. Um, and, and we all need our own uh, time, male, female, etc., to to learn how to do new things when people when new human beings show up in our family. And, and so I want to go back to that day in 2017, when you're taking Stitch Fix Public, you have your child there, you're one of 20 women to like have ever done this. You're the youngest woman at that point at 34 to have ever taken a company public. Like what is going through your mind on a day like that? As an entrepreneur, I think one of the hardest things to do is actually to like remember to celebrate and to enjoy the process. One of my number one regrets is that I like didn't take more pictures along the way. And then I probably just like didn't pause to appreciate a little bit more. And honestly, like, I hate to admit it, like leading up to the IPO was the same thing. Like we'd done a two week roadshow, you know, we'd spent every day for like two weeks sitting across the table for 30 to 45 minutes at a time from investors who didn't know anything about the business. And the the process wasn't going great. Like not that many people were excited to invest. And so like the Wednesday before the IPO, like I called, she's actually now the CEO of Nextdoor, but she'd been the CFO of Square. And I literally had met her like once or twice, this woman, Sarah Fryer. And like, she had told me about how the Square IPO was really challenging. And so I texted her at 9 p.m. Pacific time and was like, can you talk? And I called her cried. Like I was like in this hotel room sitting on the bed. I remember exactly where I was sitting. And I was just like, this has been so terrible. These investors aren't excited. We're going to be pricing below the range. It's so disappointing. And like, this was supposed to be this exciting day on Friday. And like, how am I going to stand up there and be like smiling in front of all these people and the cameras when this has been such a disaster? And she was just like, got me out of my feelings a little bit and like helped me to have that perspective and like lifted me up. And I, I share this because this was somebody I met once. And I literally like happened to have her phone number saved. I remember the story that she told me. And I was like, this moment is, this is related to her story. And, and she picked up the phone. Like I text her at 9 PM. I was like, can you talk? She was like, sure. And, you know, I think it was, um, to be able, you know, we are all there for each other in that way. And, you know, for me, it was such a powerful reminder of, first of all, like just all these things are hard and nothing that looks like this beautiful moment is like all that beautiful in the background. But also just that like there is such an incredible network out there, even when you do feel a little bit like the first of people who are there to support you, people who who have done related things before, you know, even though leading up to it, I felt like I literally was crying that night and was like, you know, not feeling super 
I don't know, proud. I will say like, it was, I think it was on a Friday on that day being up there, I did feel immensely proud. And, you know, I think it was impossible not to feel proud when you had your whole team up there and, you know, to be able to feel like you had, I mean, I didn't have the whole team, but you know, I had many of my team up there. I had my family there and it was really hard to just not feel like, okay, like this is actually like a rec- a milestone of recognition. And, um, and the, the being the first part too, was I think, you know, you have complicated feelings about that because like, I felt proud to be that, but I also felt weirdly guilty being that because I know I am not the most talented woman who's done this in the last hundreds of years. There have been so many other women that deserve this more than I did, who for whatever reason didn't get the chance to be here. You know, I think there's complicated feelings with that, of feeling like really proud, feeling also a deep responsibility, I think, just knowing that I, I'm sure I didn't deserve it as much as the many, 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 many women before me, but I got to have that moment but also feeling like responsibility of like, okay, I need to try to push this door open more so that the many hundreds of women who came before me who didn't get to be here, that we're opening the door for the many more people who are coming ahead and that like, and they need to be here too. And so I think there was a lot of like, just kind of complicated emotion around it, but that it was definitely like really a moment of pride. What I love most about what you just said was that there's self-doubt no matter which stage you are. Like here's this woman, one of 20 women to ever found a company and take it public, who's crying like the day or two before her IPO because she doesn't feel like she's worthy enough. So I want everyone out there to understand that self-doubt plagues us no matter which phase we are at in life. And it's something we're always gonna have to conquer and battle. And, and then, like she said, like pay it forward, you know, talk to another woman around you, another person around you to give you that pep up talk because you are, you are doing this to yourself. You are getting in your own way and we all do it and it's natural. It's fine. But we need someone to help us pull ourselves out of it when it does happen. Um, okay, Katrina, can we do a couple quick fire questions before we wrap up? Sure. Okay. Ready? Number one, must have in your closet. Ooh. That is especially hard right now since nothing really fits. Um, (laughs) But living in San Francisco, I feel like, you know, like a lightweight kind of like felt wool coat. That is every day I'm in that. Yes. It's always 60 degrees in San Francisco. Um, Exactly. Worst part of being an entrepreneur. Oof. um, You know, I mean, it is it's doing everything. Like I remember I had a friend from high school visit me when I first started the company and he's like, Oh, I get it. Like you are CEO slash janitor. And I was like, true. And so I think it's like, it's doing everything. And then it is like, once you start employing people, like, you know, for me, I just really felt, I still do. Like I have 10,000 employees at this point. And like, I still feel like you feel the weight of the world when you feel like you think about the people and their families and what they depend on for you. And, um, and it like, it, it doesn't really go away. It feels very, it feels really weighty. Yeah. And I shouldn't say that's the worst part because it's also in some ways the best part, right? Is that you feel like you're creating jobs, but it really does feel like it just feels like a lot of responsibility. That's true for sure. Finally, best piece of advice for any new entrepreneurs out there. Oh, I mean, I think it is about just this, you know, the unabashed, like, set aside, just, you know, don't worry about being embarrassed. Don't worry about saying no and just putting yourself out there and like 
cold calling people on LinkedIn, DMing people on Instagram, DMing people on, on Twitter. It's like, you know, the worst that can happen is that somebody ignores you or says no. And then actually there's good that comes of that too, because then you get used to that feeling and you get more and more comfortable doing it. And so, you know, I think it's just like, get out there and, you know, and be vulnerable and, and put yourself in your business out there. I love it. And I think that's a great tip for anyone, entrepreneur or not, just get used Get used to rejection, build some thick skin, put yourself out there, try the uncomfortable thing, get out of your comfort zone, and I bet you, you'll be excited about where life leads you. Katrina, thank you so much for being here today and sharing your story so authentically. Where can all of our listeners find you if they want to follow you? Yeah. I mean, honestly, Instagram, I... I've been so bad. I haven't been on, I really have been inactive on Instagram, but maybe I will be better. But Instagram is probably the best. I also do a thing called Mentoring Mondays, where on Mondays, I'll kind of post, I'll post like a question box and then I'll kind of spend the day answering questions. So you can find me there on Monday. Um, but it's, it's been very fun. So thank you for having me. We loved having you. Um, well, thank you, everyone. That is our show today. If you enjoyed it and you're listening to this on podcast, please give us a rating and review. And until then, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Teach Me Something New, a production of iHeartRadio and Brit Co. I'm your host, Britt Morin. Find more information about each episode at Brit.co slash listen. You can also find me on social media. I'm at Brit or follow us at Brit and Co. Teach Me Something New is executive produced by Ali Ives and Ali Perry with additional production and sound design by Mark Lemmerjazy and Aaron Peterson.